Hey ladies, welcome back to the study. We're in week four. You've made it halfway through this study. I have been praying for you and continue to be so thankful for you. I know I learned a lot last week from Emily's teaching and I've heard from you guys that you did as well. So as we jump into chapter eight, the second half of it, here's where we left off a week ago. As we closed, we saw Jesus asking a lot of questions to his disciples. Back in 8.18, he says, Having eyes do you not see, having ears do you not hear. He says to them, Do you not yet perceive or understand? It's like Jesus is saying, Do you see it yet, guys? Do you see who I am? Do you see the kingdom? And it's funny to me because after 8.21, there's no answer. And I don't know why, but it always makes me chuckle because I kind of fill in the blank myself. It's, I could just picture them being like, uh, yes, uh, kind of, uh, we, un- we understand. Wait, what was, what was the question, Jesus? It just sounds so awkward to me that there's no answer there. And then you guys read on and read the story about Jesus healing a blind man. It's intentional how Mark puts these two paragraphs together. See, this man, his his sight was repaired or restored in two different steps. And maybe we didn't quite understand why Jesus did it that way, but we have learned to kind of look for how Jesus's miracles speak to the emerging faith of the disciples. And so we were able to conclude that The disciples, too, need their blindness healed by Jesus. They, too, need to see who Jesus is, what he's doing, and how he will do it. So here's here's where we're going today, guys. Um, We are going to live in between two bookends, these two stories of blind men. So in week three, you ended the time with the healing of a blind man. And then this week, in week four... There was another blind man that Jesus healed. And so we're going to spend our time in in the meat between these two bookends. And I picked up on a, a little bit of a pattern here. Over and over again, Jesus is going to reveal who he is and how he's going to bring the kingdom. And he packs a ton of teaching about what the kingdom is like. Now, we're not gonna go through everything that you read, but we're gonna pick up on Three times, we're gonna focus on three times that Jesus follows this pattern. And as we do, we're going to pace with the disciples as they kind of make their way near to Jerusalem and learn the way of the kingdom. So our text opened in 8b, and if there's any math whizzes out there, maybe you picked up that this is the exact middle of the book of Mark. I never would have figured that out on my own, but maybe some of you did. So it's in this first paragraph, starting in verse 27, that we find the middle of the book. We find a pivot, a really clean break in the story. Some commentators would say that this is when act two begins in Mark's story. And this is how it starts. Jesus is asking questions again. He says to his disciples, who do you say that I am? He's saying, do you see it? Do you see it, children? Who am I? And Peter comes in clutch. 
He confesses Christ. He says, you are the Christ. You are the Messiah, the anointed royal figure, the long-awaited Savior. So ladies, over and over again in this time together, we have to remember what it would have been like to be those disciples. So we're reading Mark's story, and we know that right away in chapter one, Mark gave us some answers. He said, okay, Jesus is the Christ. He is the Messiah. But for the disciples, this was brand new for them. For them and the crowds, it wasn't so obvious. So actually, it's really a sigh of relief when Peter gets the answer right. We're like, way to go, buddy. You are on your way, so to speak. It's like the blinders are falling off. The puzzle pieces are coming together and their faith is blossoming. So the pattern begins. Jesus has revealed who he is. With Peter's confession, we feel the story pivot. Jesus is saying, all right, you get it. Now let's keep talking about this. And he begins to teach them about how he will bring the kingdom. Starting in verse 31, he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. And he said this plainly. How does Peter respond? Okay, again, put yourself in their shoes. What did they understand about the Son of Man? Their understanding came from their Jewish education, from the prophecy of Daniel. The Son of Man was a man, just that, a man who was given authority, dominion, and power from God. In fact, he was given a throne next to God himself. So it makes sense that Peter would feel like this is a contradiction. It's like Peter says, "Uh, don't you see, Jesus? This cannot be. You cannot be the one bringing the kingdom of God and also be a suffering servant. You can't be king and servant. You can't be both victorious and defeated. So what does Peter do? He rebukes Jesus. Ever put your foot in your mouth, ladies? How about this week? Just last night, I was reminded of one of the most awkwardly painful moments of the last couple months that I just feel like I need to throw myself under the bus for. We're sitting in staff meeting and I put my foot in my mouth in response to my boss. I almost, you could say, rebuked him. He said something profound and Um, and like open-ended, he said something like, uh, and it's actually a quote, but I don't exactly remember how he said it, but like, you know, boredom is an opportunity for creativity. And before he even barely finished this sentence, I said, or boredom's an opportunity for sin, like David and Bathsheba. And then I just froze, like, Rebecca, shut your mouth. Pull the foot out of your mouth and learn to think before you speak. Anyway, there was grace there. Uh, I didn't get a rebuke back. I deserved one. But this is essentially what Peter does. He puts his foot in his mouth. That good moment with Peter from like, you know, one minute ago, it's gone. How does Jesus then respond to Peter's response? 
he rebukes him right back. It says that he rebukes Peter and said, oh, Peter, you hurt my feelings. Can you please not say that again? No, that's not what he says. He says, get behind me, Satan. And we have to ask, why in the world did Jesus respond that way? Why so stern, Jesus? Well, this is one of those times where we want to ask good questions of the text, but we don't have to just guess. We can just open up the text and look because it tells us why Jesus said that. He explains, he says, for you, Peter, are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Well, let's slow down with this for just a second, guys. In our homework, we kind of drew out this conclusion that this clash between Jesus and Peter was kind of similar to the clash we see between Jesus and Satan during Jesus's early time in the wilderness. And we went to the account in Matthew, which gives us more details. And I hope that you guys, you know, read through that and, and saw these three temptations that Satan presents before Jesus. The first one is about bread. Satan says to Jesus, hey, turn, you know, Jesus had been fasting for 40 days. And, and Satan says, hey, see these rocks? Turn them into bread. And then next, he takes Jesus to the top of the temple inside of Jerusalem. And he tells himself, hey, throw yourself down and command the angels to protect you. And then third, he takes him on top a high mountain to see all the kingdoms of the world. And he says, all of these kingdoms I will give to you if you bow down and worship me. And it's at this point that Jesus rebukes him and says, be gone, Satan. So why these similar responses to both Satan and Jesus? What is it about what Peter said that got him called Satan? Well, here's what I've learned from, what, from some previous teachings about what Satan is really saying to Jesus. He's saying, hey, Jesus, provide for yourself. You can't trust God to provide for you. So turn those rocks into bread. He says to Jesus, protect yourself. He says, hey, skip the long road to Jerusalem. Satan is saying to Jesus, don't trust God. Don't trust him to provide for you, to protect you, and don't wait for your glory. What Satan is saying to Jesus is, skip the suffering. And Peter is saying something very similar. He's saying, Jesus, there is no room for suffering in your kingdom. Following you, Christ, it means power, not suffering. It means people, not rejection. It means authority, not death. It's like he's saying to Jesus, hey, I dropped my nets and followed you for an adventure, for newness, for happiness, not for suffering. At this point in Peter's understanding, following Jesus meant the exclusion of suffering. And ladies, isn't this Satan's ploy with all of us today? He offers us the world. It's like he's saying, can't you see it? There is bread for the taking. There's ways to protect yourself. There is glory to be had. And through his lies and temptations, what he wants is to build a framework for us, for our life that says, there's no room for suffering. Suffering doesn't belong here. 
And he wants to get us to, to live our life in a way where we protect ourselves from any kind of want or hunger, any need or inconvenience. He wants us to defend off pain, correction, or loss. What is it when Jesus, when Jesus says the things of man? Could it be that the things of man is wanting the cush life? The life with the padded savings account, the padded pantries and padded self-esteems. But the things of God, the things of God is his kingdom. And while it's not easy to accept at first, his kingdom has room for suffering. In fact, his kingdom would come through suffering. It's a kingdom where we read that we're invited to pick up our cross and follow him. See, it's not just making room for suffering, but we're to pick it up, so to speak. That doesn't mean that, that we go looking for trouble or pain. It doesn't even have to mean that we're happy about pain and suffering. But we, we run our concepts of suffering and pain through the gospel, and we find truths that tell us that we can consider it pure joy when we face afflictions. A lot of our last study was built on this idea. And it, it came back to my mind this week. And, and at the risk of sounding dramatic or theatrical, not that I've ever been called those things, but I was reminded of something uh, last February, going to Copyworks to pick up the boxes of this study called Suffering, How the Story of the Bible Helps Us in Our Pain. I felt the Holy Spirit prompt me to pray a prayer that is almost funny now. Praying this prayer that was like, Lord, do I need to suffer to experience you in a new way? Lord, do I, do I need some suffering to come into my life so that I can correctly understand the study? Little did I know that a month later, there would start to be talks about a virus and quarantine and kids being brought to homeschool. But it wasn't even those things that uh, really surprised me with life. It was actually a week before any of those things happened that I started to really, really struggle with anxiety. And I'm not going to talk about it like it's over. But I will say some of the promises that I have found during this really hard season. It's October now, so we're looking at eight months where I feel like the Lord has allowed anxiety to come into my life, and I, I didn't really have the muscles for it. It was pretty new for me to experience. Yet God, in his love and in his sovereignty, allowed it to start like a week before quarantine, as if to say, daughter, child, I am the one that is allowing this to come into your life. And I will give you understanding later, but for now you can know that I am in this and that I am with you and that I love you. And I think that I'll slowly begin to, to understand it more, but I don't want to talk about it like it's over. Part of me doesn't want to rush the sweet place of being with God, of being 
near to God during some struggles. It's like this pain, the suffering was smelling salts that woke me up to the things of God. And I'm, I'm thankful for it, not in a fake optimism, but like in a quieted and hopefully humbled way. I feel like the Lord showed me the difference, the, the things in my life that were built on the things of man, where I love to feel safe and secure and comfortable, and the things of God, which we'll continue to unpack in this text. So that's round one of Jesus revealing who he is and what his kingdom is like. Round two, the pattern picks up again in chapter nine, where Jesus reveals himself in the transfiguration. I love this story. So starting in verse two, it says, after six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John and led them up a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them. And his clothes became radiant, intensely white, as no one on earth could bleach them. And there appeared to them Elijah with Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. And again, let's focus on Peter's response. Peter says to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good for us to be here. Okay, first of all, Peter, why did you feel like you had to say anything? Why must you always sound just like me in your stories? It's like Peter saying, are you seeing this, guys? And, and he's excited or he's overstimulated or he's terrified. He does not know what to say. So he says, it's, it's good for us to be here. So earlier we saw that Peter wasn't really on board with the suffering Jesus, but here he's not really sure what to do with the glorified Jesus either. So we have Peter, James, and John. And here's what helps me understand this scene. It reminds me of that scene in the movie Sandlot where Babe Ruth, shows up to Benny the Jet Rodriguez, my fifth grade crush, and he gives him some game-changing information. Do you know this scene? It's a, it's a dream or something. And, and what he says, what Babe Ruth says, is that heroes get remembered, but legends never die. He's got that huge cigar in his mouth, and he says, tackle the beast. Okay, ladies, Moses and Elijah are like Babe Ruth to the Jewish men. They are the greats. They are the heroes. They are the legends that never die. And so maybe Peter is up on this mountain and he's making some connections. Maybe he's up there and he's saying, okay, I'm atop a mountain. And both of these men had experiences atop a mountain where they experienced God, where they heard God, where they saw his glory. His Jewish education is firing on all cylinders. He's saying, okay, I know these stories. Maybe he didn't have a chart to fill out like us, but he's putting pieces together. He's saying, okay, I see these men and I'm, I'm not sure what's going on, but what I do know is that Jesus is in his glory and glory is supposed to be tucked away into the back of the tabernacle. No man is supposed to encounter the glory of God or he dies. And so maybe that's why Peter says this next thing. Maybe it's because of that that he says that he wants to make a tent for them. Riffing off of this tabernacle idea of, I need to put glory where it belongs. I need to contain it for my own safety. He decides that all three of these Jewish greats should be put in a tent. 
So is it wrong? Is Peter wrong? That's our question so often this week, like, uh, what are we supposed to think about him? If he's wrong, where did he go wrong? Again, this is not a question to guess at, but to find back in the text. Let's keep reading. It says that a cloud overshadowed them, and a voice came out of the cloud saying, this is my beloved son, listen to him. Ladies, doesn't it sound like the baptism? This is now the second time where we have heard a voice from heaven declaring Jesus to be the son of God, not just the son of God, but the beloved son of God. And this cloud that's overshadowing him, it makes us think of Sinai when the Shekinah glory descended atop the mountain and and also led the people. But it also reminds us of the spirit at the baptism that hovered over the waters. And then it says, suddenly, looking around, they no longer saw anyone with them but Jesus alone. What are we to understand about this? What is being revealed about Jesus in the transfiguration? I think it might be that Jesus is not just one of the greats. Jesus is far better than Moses. He's so much better than even Elijah. In fact, he is the son of God and the glory of God himself. The mountaintop experience for these three disciples is that they, just like Mount Sinai and Mount Carmel, they were seeing the glory of God and they weren't destroyed. Something has changed because of Jesus. And Jesus goes right into kind of round two of his teaching. As they descend the mountain, these three stooges are trying their best to understand what they have just seen but they don't see it yet. They are thinking kingdom, glory, victory. Those three things, those make sense. But Jesus is so focused and he lays it out for them again. He tells them that the son of man will suffer many things, that he will be treated with contempt. The teaching has ended as they come to the bottom of the mountain. And who do they encounter? They kind of encounter a chaotic scene and and there's an argument revolving around the the rest of the disciples. And and there's there's this awkward moment in my mind because what's happening is that the, the remaining disciples, they were not able to execute a miracle. They were not able to drive out a demon. Now, come on. First of all, they didn't get picked to go up the mountain with Jesus. As if that wasn't a big enough bummer, as if they weren't feeling like JV or B team. Now they were, they just have a big old fail. They weren't able to execute this miracle. Kind of funny. But we were invited to see a contrast. As the father of this boy who was possessed by a demon kind of becomes the focus. And we hear his simple and honest response to Jesus. He says, I believe, help my unbelief. And so we see like the faith of these disciples, these disciples who are trying so hard to figure it out. They wanna put these pieces together and really they want to know when they get to be in glory. When is the kingdom coming? And yet we see Jesus honor this dad's response. He's saying, I believe, 
I see it. Jesus, I, I see who you are, at least somewhat. But would you help me to see more? Would you help me to understand more? And then the third round that we're going to go through today picks up in the next chapter. Between like what I'm calling round two and round three, Jesus packs in so much teaching about the kingdom. And I hope that you took your time and your homework to pick that apart and to, to see this upside down nature of the kingdom of God, to see how we are to receive the kingdom, um, not, not earn it, not even fight for it. Maybe like these disciples were ready to fight the Romans for it, but to receive it and receive it like a child. I hope you looked at, at how we're supposed to treat one another within the kingdom. Our final point starts in 1032, where again, Jesus is going to foretell his death. And, and they're on the road like they have been the whole time, right? This long road trip, at first they were just moving all across the, the sea and bouncing from town to town, but now they have pivoted and made set their route to Jerusalem. They are on the road going up to Jerusalem, and Jesus was walking ahead of them. And, and it says that he took the 12, so here he is focused, and he begins to tell them what was to happen, saying, see, we're going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes. They will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles. And he's not done. He gives them even more details. They will mock him, spit on him, flog him, and kill him. And after three days, he will rise. And yet, he's walking out ahead of them. I love that. I mean, did they see what Jesus was walking into? Do they see why Jesus' face is set on Jerusalem? I don't think so. Because the next paragraph goes into the story of James and John. See, although the pack of 12 was just recently corrected on desiring greatness, these two yahoos come to Jesus and ask for the seats of honor in his kingdom. They ask to be on his right and his left in the position of glory. They ask Jesus to share his authority with them. They ask Jesus to share his glory with them. Is that wrong? In one light, I totally get it. Their Jewish education once again has taught them that the Messiah would be enthroned in Jerusalem, in the city of David. So I get that. But then I realize I really can't judge them because so often I know that this is me. I mean, even on this side of the cross where I have been told the story of Jesus dying on the cross my entire life, even with that in my mind, there are so many times that what I want Jesus to do for me is to make me great. What I want Jesus to do for me is to make me safe, to make me comfortable, even to make me look good. How does Jesus respond to their request? Just a little bit later, Jesus says to them, he calls them together and he says, you know that those regarded as rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them, and their superiors exercise authority over them. But it shall not be this way 
among you. Instead, whoever wants to be great among you must be your servant. And whoever wants to be first must be the slave of all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Okay, let's make sure that we've got all of this coming together. We have seen that Jesus is the Christ. He is the glory of God. He is the fulfillment of the law and the prophets. He is the Son of Man, given all authority and dominion. And yet, he came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Ladies, how many stories in just the first 10 chapters have we read where we have seen Jesus's authority? Authority over demons, authority over the weather, authority over sickness. I mean, rulers, men of authority like Jairus come and fall at his feet. And yet here we read that his plan is to lay down his authority. The king is also the servant, the servant who would be the ransom. But what does this mean? Let's let's look again in chapter 10. How did Jesus respond to that request of James and John? He doesn't call them out for wanting to share in his authority or in his glory. But he says that first they're going to share in something else. They're going to share in his sufferings. Did you see that? See, he uses the metaphors of the cup and the baptism. The cup throughout the Old Testament symbolized the wrath of God. And baptism in this reference, what it means is like this immersion, this complete immersion into the chaos and into the deadly waters. Jesus is saying that he is going to go under, completely under, completely immersed in the wrath of God. This is a really important concept for us to understand, to deepen our understanding on the gospel. We have said that an aspect of Jesus bringing the kingdom of God is that he would defeat Satan and sin. But when Jesus says that he is the ransom, the payment, what he is doing in that moment is satisfying the wrath of God. So how can we get this wrong at times? Well, I think that a false teaching that can sometimes creep in in this moment is that we think that the scene at the cross is Jesus taking Satan head on as if they're equal, right? Almost like this notion of dualism, like there, there's going to be this standoff between the two and that, that that's what we're being rescued from ultimately. That's, that's who Jesus is paying the ransom to. But hold on, for us, let's, let's think about this. This is why we study entire books at a time. What have we seen for all of Mark's story? I mean, right away, we saw Jesus kick Satan's butt, right? He defeated him in the garden. And Mark, if you remember from week one, even said that the wild animals were there and the angels were ministering to him. So we see Jesus as stronger than Satan. And we see Jesus as having total authority over wild animals. And even as 
uh, higher than the angels. And then for the rest of the book of Mark, we see Jesus defeating evil with ease. With just the words of his mouth, he expels demons and defeats them. So we should carry that understanding forward into the end of the story. That, that Satan, the whole time, is a created being and Jesus holds all authority over him, okay? Satan is on a leash until the very end. Jesus is always stronger and always more powerful than him. Ladies, that should give us confidence in our day-to-day life, but it should also bolster our understanding of what happened on the cross. It actually makes the cross all the harder to bear because Jesus took on the wrath of his father. Jesus, the beloved son, allowed himself to be rejected by God so that we would not have to take the wrath of God. I love the the lyrics of before the throne of God above. I think it really explains this aspect of atonement well. Because the sinless savior died, my sinful soul is counted free. For God the just is satisfied to look on him, Jesus, and pardon me. To look on him and pardon me. Ladies, do you see it? Do you see how, think of this, even the three guys who saw Jesus in his glory in the transfiguration, those same three guys were soon going to be invited into the Garden of Gethsemane where they would see Jesus in his weakness. The guys who saw him in his glory were also going to see him in his weakness. Those men who were going to see his divine nature were also going to see that he is the son of man. He is fully human. The same guys were invited to stay awake. And if they would have stayed awake, they would have heard Jesus beg for the cup to be taken from him. Jesus was so fully human that he was scared and weak in that moment and asked if it was possible that God would take that cup from him. Those same men who saw Jesus in those sparkling white robes would soon see him in a garment stained as blood came from his body in beads of sweat. Perhaps the reason why Mark left those questions unanswered in chapter 8 is so that we would see that they are intended for us as well. It's like we are hearing the question, ladies, we have eyes, but do we see? We have ears, but do we hear? Do we yet understand? So as we finish up, guys, I have three options that I see or or three opportunities for faith from today's story. The first one, the first option we have is that we could take the glory now. You know, we could take what we see. We could puff up our self-esteems with attention, with cash, with flat tummies, with kids who make us look good. We could take our glory now. We could build a life where our central goal is just to avoid pain. 
And it really won't require any faith of us. So our life would be filled with dodging suffering, with rejecting it when it comes. You know, when it comes, we would stiff arm it and harden ourselves against it and not allow it to affect us. And we could take our glory now. We could take our reward now. Our second option is that we could take this opportunity to focus on our future glory. Like in the transfiguration, right? Those three disciples saw their future glory, essentially. They saw what it would be like in the future, what Jesus would be like and the glory that he would, you know, share with them. So we could spend our days meditating on how good heaven will be, how good it'll be when God's kingdom fully comes in the new heavens and the new earth. And we could just sit around and wait for it. And it will require some faith of us. But I think there's a third option presented in the book of Mark, and I think it's worth it. I think that we could embrace the way of the kingdom, which is this crazy belief that the way of glory is through suffering. Being in God's kingdom means we don't just, we don't avoid pain, but it's also not about just being tough when pain comes, but it's about leaning into it when it comes. It's about picking up our cross and following Jesus. And ladies, this will require faith. Not in ourselves, not in our spiritual resumes, not in our goodness, but our faith has to be in the servant king who led the way to glory through the cross. Ladies, faith is believing in what we do not yet see. Do you see the hope in this? Do you see the good news in this? Ladies, do you see that your current sufferings are not meaningless? When we lean into them, when we pick them up, when we embrace them, knowing that Jesus took on a far greater suffering, then we can believe that that pain is doing something. It is never meaningless. Your pain, your discomfort, your struggle, your rejection, the contempt contempt that you are receiving, the doubt that you are being fed, the lies that you are being fed, those sufferings are not meaningless. They are doing something in the hands of a good father, always. So ladies, it is not always easy to see this. Like the disciples, we need Jesus to heal our blindness. And it might take time, it might take some steps. So what do we do? I think we pray like the Father. We say, Lord, I believe, but help my unbelief. And maybe we could be like Bartimaeus, who closes out our text from this week. Bartimaeus, whose eyes were opened by Jesus. Maybe we could be like him. Maybe we could want Jesus, and we could want to see his kingdom more than we want immediate glory more than we want comfort or safety or security. Maybe just want to see Jesus. Let's pray. 
Father, we believe that those who sow in tears will reap in joy. Lord, we do not want to fall for Satan's temptation to skip the suffering because we believe your promise that these light and momentary troubles or afflictions are preparing for us an eternal weight of glory that is beyond all comparison. Lord, we believe this. If just a mustard seed amount, Lord, we believe this. So we lean in and we lift up our pain and our secrets and our shame and our anxiety and our depression. We lift it up and we say that we believe you, that it will be worth it that you're doing something in us. And, and just as you invite us to share in your suffering, you promise that you will share with us your glory. Thank you, Lord, that we can say that we were once blind, but now we see. Amen.